So we're, we're continuing our service, our, our series on the mighty works of Jesus, or the marvelous works of Jesus. And we're going to go today to Luke 4. Last week, our first sermon was on the calling of John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. You can listen to that one if you go to our website, www.evergreentn.com, and you can hear it if you wish. But we're moving on now to see what happened after the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. And so we'll look today at uh, Luke 4, verses 1 through 30. So let's give attention to God's holy and inspired word. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that, you were many, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is God's Holy Spirit, Holy Word. Let's pray. 
O Lord, our God Almighty, we give you praise, O Lord, today that you have spoken to us of a great Savior who is your Son, worthy of all praise with you, the Father, and the Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see the greatness of our champion, the one who has won the victory over the devil. Help us to see it and so be encouraged. And so as we, even as we fight in this world, that we would not give up, but that we would do so in his strength and the power of the one who has already come and defeated the devil and will soon crush him under our feet. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see your word, glorify your name through our hearts as we receive it with faith and love and prepare to live in accordance with it in our lives. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When you start thinking about the big challenges of evil and oppression in the world, it's easy to despair because it seems like there's so little that can be done about it. The challenges are so extensive. They're so involved in so many things that you don't know what you can do. And evil just seems to keep coming. One of the areas where I've seen that recently is in the area of scams. It seems like there is a proliferation of people trying to steal money, oftentimes from the most vulnerable people. And we experience this as a church. Someone sent a request in my name trying to get money and through in, the form of, uh, in the form of gift cards sent to them. And they set up a clever uh, email that looked like mine, and it was really extensive. And, um, and so it brought a lot of confusion. And we've also seen it in other ways in our, church, in, in our own church, in our body. And so I've been thinking about scams. And, I, and I've been, like, alerted to the fact that this is going on. And yet, recently, when I was driving uh, Uber... I was a victim of a scam, and I almost lost money with it. It was so clever, and I was just not really thinking about it in the midst of what I was doing. And I was like, I'm thinking about all these, I'm thinking about scams a lot lately, and still, I almost got taken. And it just is a reminder to me of like how much evil is coming at us and is ready to take us in ways that we're not aware of. And we all know that not only... Not only do we see that evil out there, but that we've all fallen into it in our hearts. That things, that evil has seduced us. And that we've done things that grieve our hearts. And that we struggle with, even to this day. And we know that even, for some of us, we can look back at things and say, you know, a couple more missteps, and it would have been total disaster. And what this reminds us is, we need a a champion in the battle against evil. And that's what this text teaches us. We have a champion. The temptation of Jesus and the battle that he fights against Satan comes hard on the heels of his baptism. He is baptized to show his solidarity with his people, to show us that he is with us all the way, that as we seek to turn from evil and repentance, he is right there with us and that he will lead us and that he will help us. But then the Spirit leads him directly from his baptism into a fight with the devil. And one thing that should remind us is that we have to follow the steps of our Savior. We 
after our baptism, after being brought to Christ, are going to have to fight against the devil as well. And the Spirit will actually lead us against that. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we come to faith in Christ if all of a sudden we find that there are challenges coming against us that where we have to fight, where we have to struggle. We follow in the way of the Savior. Now, in some ways, the temptation that we read about here shows us an example of how we are going to also have to fight against Satan. But there's another sense in which this temptation is very dissimilar to what we will face. And indeed, the most important sense, it is not like us. It's not, what we, it's not our experience. It is Jesus' experience, and it is unique, and it is him fighting against the devil on our behalf. There's also a contrast here between our first father, Adam, and the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like, just like Adam, uh, just like Adam, Jesus had to face a temptation. But there's a big contrast. Jesus was in a wilderness. Adam was in a garden. Jesus went without food for 40 days. Adam had plenty of food. Jesus' temptations were very subtle and somewhat and, and challenging. Adam's, Adam's challenge and temptation involves something very simple. Don't eat from this one tree and you can eat everything else. And so there's a similar temptation going on, but Jesus is put in a much more difficult position. He like starts with his hands tied behind his back and he has to fight against the devil. And just like with Adam, the devil came to tempt him. One thing we need to recognize as we think about the world of evil is that it doesn't just involve our own evil hearts. It doesn't just involve human beings beyond it, orchestrating it. And in a much greater way is the devil himself. These are, the devil is an angelic being who revolted against the Lord, took many angelic beings with him. We now often call them demons or devils. And they opposed that which is good. They did not want to see what God had made thrive and flourish. And so we need to recognize always when we are concerned about things in the world that our battle is not against flesh and blood primarily. It is against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Now, <clears throat> the devil comes then to tempt Jesus. To get him to sin like he got our first father to sin. In order to understand this temptation, I think you have to look at what God the Father had said to Jesus at his baptism. The Father had announced that to Jesus, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And every temptation of the devil is an attempt to get Jesus to not believe that, to not believe the destiny that the Father had for him as his son as the rightful heir of the world, and instead to seek a shortcut and to reject this word of God. And so let's look at each of these temptations, and that's how we'll see it. In Luke 4, verse 3, the devil says, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Now, this was a challenge, of course, because Jesus had fasted for 40 days. He had gone without food. And as our text says, <coughs> he was hungry. And so Satan tells him to turn stones into bread. 
But notice, it's not simply that he tells him to turn stones into bread, or stone into bread. Because, and, and if you think about it, you might wonder, you know, why would it be wrong for Jesus to turn stone into bread? I mean, if he's capable, he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, creating new food that people could eat. Why could he not do this for themselves? What would be the wrong with it? Well, I think if you, have to, if you look at the temptation carefully, it says, not just turn the stones into bread, but it says, if you are the Son of God, turn the stone into bread. And what he's trying to do to say is, in essence, are you really the Son of God? If so, show it by turning the stone into bread. In other words, you don't, you've heard the word of the Father, but do you really need to live out of that? You need another demonstration to show that you're really the Son of God. It's, it's Satan's way of sowing doubt in the word of the Father. It's just like what he said at the beginning to our first mother, Eve. Did God really say? Seeking to sow doubt in the word of God. But Jesus saw through the if here. And he, said, and he responds by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone, which recalls the time when the Israelites doubted the word of God the, about the promise that God had given them to bring them into the land and cause them to prosper and doubted God's goodness for them. And it said, man shall not live by bread alone. You have to live by the word of God is the next part of that verse. And so Jesus was saying, it's not on the basis of bread that I'm going to have this confirmation, but in essence, I'm going to rely on the word of God. And in that way, he defeated this temptation. The second temptation involved a shortcut to the goal. The father had promised him, and we can read the promises in the Old Testament, that the son would be the heir of the world, that he would rule over all things. But but the problem was, that in order to achieve the crown, he had to go through the cross. And what Satan promised him was a shortcut to the kingdoms of the world. He took him up to a high place. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. In other words, all you have to do is bow before me, and then you can have it, and you don't have to have the cross. But Jesus quickly responds and says, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In other words, the only one in whom he would find his hope, the only one in whom he would find his fulfillment, is the Father in heaven. And he would not, for the, to, to avoid some pain and to avoid some suffering, reject that highest obligation and his true hope and bow to Satan. And so he defeated the second temptation. The third temptation was similar. It was, again, a sort of shortcut. He was supposed to show the world that he was the true son of God by jumping off the height of the temple to the valley below, which is about 420 feet. And Satan was clever at this time and and subtle in his temptation because he didn't just say, go jump off and show you're the son of God. He actually quoted the Bible and the promises of God in order to get him to do this. And he quotes from the Psalms, which say, He will command his angels concerning you, 
to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So he says, see, you're protected. Show the world you're protected, and they'll know you're the Son of God. Well, the problem with that is, first of all, it would not work because you know how humans are. You do something amazing, and what do they say right after that? Let's see that again, right? So it's not, it's not really going to work. And we can see that from the rest of the life of Jesus. He does innumerable signs, and they reject him still. But, but even more importantly, it was not allowed. The promises of God were not an opportunity to put the Lord to the test. And Jesus answers again from the book of Deuteronomy. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the devil leaves him. And the key thing to hear, to see here, is that Jesus won. He won and he defeated the devil. He succeeded where our first father Adam had fell, failed. He held fast to the word of God, whereas Adam doubted it and then disobeyed it. Jesus obeyed the Father in a difficult, challenging, and complex temptation, whereas Adam failed in an easy one. And so what we see is, this is our champion. This is the one who defeats the devil. There is one who is greater than the one who is in the world, the devil. And that is the glorious and good news. And after this, Jesus must have felt an exhilaration. He's gone through the test. And he's defeated the devil. And he's moving forward. And he feels and knows the power of the Spirit. It says in Luke 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. There was a positive reaction. And everyone was praising him and saying he's doing great. So it's like the momentum is going forward. The momentum is going forward. And Jesus is going all throughout Galilee. And finally he comes to his own hometown, the place where he grew up, the city of Nazareth. And what he does is just like he did every Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and he prepared to preach. And he opened up the scroll and he read from, from Isaiah, as we have it here in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you can see as he read this, that he must have been seeing this occur. He's seeing this occur before his eyes. He knew the promise of the Lord. He knew these things, and he knew that he was the one. But he was seeing it now as people were healed and demons were cast out and, and the good news is proclaimed and people were coming to repentance and all these good things were happening. And so what does he say? It's not surprising. Today, the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the day of the Lord's favor. So the question is, how would the Nazarenes react to this? Now, it's interesting. If you look at verse 22, listen to how it describes it. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Now, you could read this in a way that to say, that, that would, would indicate that they were receiving his message and that they were believing it. If you just had this in isolation, you might think that. 
But we see that behind the things they're saying is a level of doubt in what he is saying. We know this from how Jesus responded. Jesus knew the truth was that beyond the amazement was a sense of how could this person be the Messiah. Now, before we talk about what Jesus says, I just want to have a, you know, a side note here. It's just amazing to think that here he is standing before his own people and they're going to reject him and ultimately try to kill him. But what had he just done? He had just defeated the devil. He had done what, our, what no one else could do, what our first father couldn't do, and he had won in the temptation. And they didn't even know that. They didn't see that. They, do, they couldn't see what was going on. And it makes me wonder, you know, how many times is there just bigger things going on that we don't see and we act on limited information? I was thinking about that as we sang that song earlier. Even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't see it, he's working. You know, we look at a situation, we look at struggles, we look at problems, and we're concerned about people, but often we forget that God's there working, and he's doing things, and sometimes amazing things that we're not even ready for. That's what was going on behind the scenes here. Now let's look at what Jesus says. So Jesus knew their thoughts, and he says, Truly I tell you, no prophet... Uh, or surely you will quote this proverb to be, physician, heal yourself. In other words, if this is who you are, you show it. Just like you did in Capernaum, they had heard about the things he did there. Show how great you are. It's kind of not that different from what Satan was saying, actually. He's, they're saying to him, show that you are really the Son of God. Like the, those who would later say, if you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so... Jesus, though, says, this is kind of what I expect. Why? Because there's a, there's a proverb. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. And this has been shown not only there, but also all throughout the history of Israel. He actually goes back and he says, you know, you look at when God has sent the word to Israel, what's happened? Oftentimes it's just been rejected. People don't accept the prophet who's from their hometown, as it were. And so he tells them, in fact... Think about Elijah and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets. When Elijah was sent to a widow to help her in the midst of a famine, it wasn't actually an Israelite. He was sent to, far to the north and helped a Gentile widow. And in the time of Elisha, who did he help? There were many lepers in Israel, but he healed a leper who was a general in the Syrian army who was actually attacking Israel. And so... You can see here that his sense, which goes in with what he quoted from Isaiah, the year of the Lord's favor is a, a, a favor for all people, for the Gentiles. Well, and you can see this happens often in the New Testament. How do they react to that? They should have repented and should have recognized the day of the Lord's favor, but they didn't. Instead, it says all the people of the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got, him, they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And so their response is, instead of repenting, they want to get rid of Jesus. Oftentimes when we have our own sin, that's our reaction. 
shoot the messenger, right? But Jesus didn't allow it. We see here his triumph. He's standing there. There's a crowd of people. There's no human reason, really, why they shouldn't be able to kill him. But he walked right through the crowd, and he went on his way. Jesus triumphed over the crowd of sinners who wanted to end his life. Now, my first year of ministry, I preached through the book. I was preaching through the book of Luke. That was what seventeen years ago. And we got up to Easter, and this passage, the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth, was the next passage that I was to preach on. So, in my zeal as a as a young minister. I said, I am going to preach the next passage, and I don't care if it's Easter. In hindsight, it wasn't a good idea. I probably should have preached on the resurrection. However, all that being said, it's kind of interesting that in a way, this is like the resurrection. A crowd of sinners who is seeking to kill him do not succeed. Instead, Jesus walks right out free from them. So I do think we have here a vision of the ultimate triumph of Jesus. The crowd of sinners tried to kill him, but he walks right through them unscathed. This is the glory of the Jesus who would die on the cross and be buried, but who would walk right out of the grave. This is the strength of the Jesus who had the power to lay down his life and power to take it up again. Here is the Jesus who defeated Satan and would defeat death in the resurrection. Here is our champion. And so for those who struggle with evil in the world, for those who struggle with evil in themselves, we do not have to despair. And we do not have to rely on ourselves. We have a champion. Amen. Thanks be to God.